Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Day One Podcast. Today, a special topic with a very special guest, um, and it's rather a new sort of topic, which I think hasn't really been going hand in hand with the previous topics. Nevertheless, I think it's just as interesting, just as um, valuable for you guys, and I really enjoyed it, and I think you guys will too. So as always, please let me know your feedback. But overall, it, it was a pleasure talking to Rico, who was one one hell of a tour guide, I'd say, um, who we had the chance to to go on a Cape Town tour with when I was in South Africa. And it was just one of the coolest experiences because you could really feel like we spent an entire day with him and he just had this incredible passion about his country, his city, and A, he had that passion, the knowledge, but also kind of like the uprising and upbringing and experience that just really made it, okay, like he knows what he's talking about. And I just thought that I don't think have had all my questions answered and much more I thought, okay, some of these questions and answers are probably just as interesting for you guys. So I thought, man, let's get this guy on the podcast. And that we did. We had a great conversation. We talked about the country itself, the history of the country, um, how it's still possible that millions, millions of people are still living in absolute poverty across the entire state and country. And we talked about his uprising and upbringing in apartheid, the fact that he's gotten shot in his head and still has his bullet up to this day in his head, which oftentimes he says, one of my favorite sayings, which he says that apartheid is still part of him, quite literally. And so that was just one of those goosebump moments in this episode. Um, we also talked about the impact of sports, how tournaments like the World Cup or like the World Cup, uh, the Rugby World Championships really transformed this entire nation to kind of stand behind something, just as much standing behind the impact of Nelson Mandela, of what he meant to the people, and much, much more. It was super exciting. I really loved it. South Africa is one of my favorite places in the world. And overall, I hope you enjoy it. So as always, let me know what you think. I appreciate you for listening. I appreciate you and enjoy. All righty. Welcome back to the show. Welcome, Rico. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Um, happy New Year. I'm guessing you have some warmer temperatures than me right now in South Africa. How are you doing? Uh, Lucas, good to hear from you again, or to see you, I should say. Uh, beautiful day here in Cape Town. Uh, really enjoying the amazing weather. And uh, yeah, it's been a pretty good year so far. I love that. So as I already mentioned in the intro, I had the pleasure to do one of the almighty Cape Town tours with you and with some other friends, my girlfriend, a very good friend of mine. We had an amazing time. We, we went all across the, the bay. We, we did some historical tours, some, some experiences, some food. And I just really enjoyed talking to you because A, you were extremely passionate about the topic of South Africa and B, you just were extremely knowledgeable. And for me, when people oftentimes look at South Africa or Cape Town, it's personally one of my favorite cities in the world and countries in the world because there's so much beauty, so much nature, so much culture. Yet there's also a side to it that not everybody's always aware of. A lot of inequality, a lot of poverty, where more than half of the country is actually still in poverty. And when we talked about it, I just remember that you really did your research on it. You really studied the entire thing. And I couldn't stop or I really enjoyed listening to you. And that's why I think you're here, because I think it's time for you to also share that story again and those messages. 
Well, uh, it's it's a very it's a very interesting history when you when you look at South Africa. Obviously, all of this that I'll be sharing with you is based on my own personal experiences and my observations growing up. But I've spent most of my life uh, in South Africa in Cape Town. That's where I'm originally from. So I might be slightly biased in that sense, uh, not speaking for the whole of South Africa. But it's, a, it's an interesting history. It's a, it's a really short history. Uh, but so many things happened over like the last 350 years to, you know, where we are right now. But I do agree with you in terms of our general society. Uh, we're one of the top holders in terms of listing on the Gini coefficient index, which basically marks the disparity between wealthy and and people living in poverty and it's a it's a real sad one uh, seeing that we've uh, you know we've already let three decades go into our new democracy to still having to face some of these issues but i suppose uh, you know if you look around the world uh, things aren't that great wherever you look and i suppose in that sense we just uh, we're just part of a of a bigger picture but is there anything in specific you'd like me to maybe address or tell you or speak more about too as well? Of course, of course. Um, one of my favorite things that you said or one of the things that stuck with me the most was that for one of you, one of the biggest frustrations is that your own people are not really aware of their own history. And yeah. so before jumping into the main history, maybe we can start with you. Where did your history start? So yes, you grew up in Cape Town, but where exactly? How, how was that for you? How was your childhood? And or with the struggles also like of apartheid too. Okay, so so I grew up in a in I suppose it's a, it was the same for quite a lot of people of my generation as well. But I grew up essentially in what was a coloured township. Um, you know, during apartheid, we were all segregated along sort of race classification lines, uh, which actually started when the British were here. I think there was about four main groups, uh, basically black, white, colored, and Indian. And uh, by the time the apartheid, the nationalists, uh, came into power, uh, they increased that to around about nine different race classification groups. And uh, growing up, I was very happy. I mean, I didn't know any better. Uh, my family was very simple. They were non-political or apolitical and basically just accepted their fate as to what the status quo was. It was really when I started traveling into the city with my parents, like let's say on the bus on weekends, that uh, I was told that I couldn't go sit on a specific place, which is quite hard if you're little, telling a, a boy he can't sit upstairs in, at the front window of a bus, uh, which I did anyway, by the way, I'm a bit of a, bit of a rebel. <laughs> a rebel. Um, but then I, you know, I started noticing these signs as well. It said that there were places for whites only. There were places to sit, uh, toilets uh, on the beach. You weren't allowed to swim at any of the beaches as well. And uh, my parents and my family, uh, you know, they didn't really share any of this with me or tell me what it was about. It was basically from the time that I started high school that I started to become more aware politically as to what was the case around me. And this was during the sort of, it started in the 70s, but for me it was when I got to high school, which was sort of in the mid to late 80s. Um, I could actually see what the problems were. And then as school learners, we decided, you know, that we were going to do something about it. And what was like, 
the first real moment that you remember? Because as you said, for, for a younger boy, I think it's quite challenging to A, start realizing, hey, like what's happening here? Why, why is it just because I look different that I can't sit here? What was for you a moment where you realized, okay, this isn't normal. Like this isn't how it's supposed to be. Well, it was, um, I remember I must have been around about the age of 11, maybe 10 or 11, where we moved into what is the largest sort of, in my day, apartheid-created township, a place called Mitchell's Plain, uh, which is absolutely large. Uh, probably just under a million people live there still to this day. And uh, there were these sort of protests happening uh, around some of the traffic intersections in our neighborhood. And being a little boy, I was very curious. I decided to see what was happening. And on one such occasion, I remember out of nowhere, a policeman appearing in front of me with a, with a gun and then fired at me and he actually shot me in my face. And um, I managed to run back home, but obviously I was injured, I was bleeding. And uh, by the time I got back home, for whatever reason, uh, my parents or my mom decided to, I don't know, add to my trauma by giving me a hiding for leaving the house. And I think that was my sort of point of realizing that something terrible was wrong. And uh, it taught me two important things. It taught me to, A, to, um, to keep my information to myself and to not trust anyone, even my parents, with the way I felt or thought about things. But, but so you're telling me you came home with a wound, like a shooting wound. Yeah. And yeah. wasn't your mom, I mean, I'm guessing she was also must have been terrified. But what happened next? Were you treated or how come there wasn't a bigger issue? Well, I was given a hiding, basically. Uh, yeah, I was given a hiding. So it was a, it was a bit of a double trauma for me. But anyway, there you go. That's what happened. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, I and still, I still, I still have the, I still have the buckshot. It's like in my head because the doctor couldn't remove it. He said that it, it might cause an infection. So whenever people ask me about apartheid, I, I like to tell them that apartheid's not dead. It lives in my head because it literally does. There's a, there's a little steel pellet that still you can still feel on my forehead. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm reminded about it first and foremost all the time. Yeah, absolutely. When you told me the first time, I was shocked. But just listening to it again, I'm 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 shocked again. But that is just terrifying. Do you do you mind kind of diving a bit deeper into like what it's like to live in a township? I mean, for me, I've gotten now a good understanding. Is when you drive through Cape Town, literally, you you leave a city, or you leave Cape Town, and not even a kilometer out, you see a massive township of this just like those aluminum or steel roofs shining or blistering yeah. the sun, yeah. which really yeah, we, don't... we call them shacks. They call shacks. So we call them shacks. And uh, they've been termed informal housing settlements or under one of the United Nations terms. And there's quite a few of them. They call them human settlements, uh, which is uh, a nice way of making them sound sort of palatable. But it's a very common... It's a very common reality for the majority of South Africans living in places like that. Um, and the problems there are twofold. I mean, people move around wanting to, you know, have their families or provide for their families. So they migrate to areas where there is economic activity and uh, there isn't always housing available. So informal housing or townships is, uh, is quite a a usual part of daily South African existence. I mean, you just need to look at pictures of rich neighborhoods from the air 
you'll see on one side you've got swimming pools and beautiful houses and literally on the other side of the road you've got thousands of these shacks you know so it's just a real pity that uh, you know even after more than 30 years of democracy that uh, the current government who has been in power all this time hasn't really been able to address this issue or to alleviate some of these issues as well but it's uh, as you go further out of the city especially to the airport side um, one of the largest townships is called Kailicha which has over a million people and it's not all shacks there are houses I mean it does have infrastructure but it, it just keeps growing at the edges in size and size and size it will be a few years before it basically reaches most of the part of false bay which is where i live on the indian ocean side of cape town as well yeah how how did your daily life or how does a daily life look like in a township uh okay so when we speak about townships um, i call the place where i grew up a township although there was basic council housing more than informal shacks um I've got many friends that live in townships and uh, just, you know, chatting to them on a day-to-day -day basis, there's quite a lot of problems that they have to encounter, things that we don't even necessarily think about or give much thought to, like electricity, running water, um, having a place, an ablution place to go to. Uh, some townships have toilets which are provided by the local sort of uh, provincial government. Um, you know, that's normally quite a distance from, let's say, where people are living in their shack. Um, so you can imagine, let's say, a few toilets servicing like 200 people, um, you know, uh, in a certain area of the township. So it can't be very dignified, that I can tell you. Um, and also, crime tends to happen in the poorer areas. So there's places that people, once they get home, they can't even go out of their shack because they are somehow imprisoned by the circumstances that prevail in those areas as well. So to me, it's not really, I don't know, it's not really a, an easy way of living, I suppose. <laughs> that, I, that I can imagine. But how how is it possible, do you say, and it sounds, I think, as a very direct, maybe even dumb question, but how is it possible that in the world we are, the 21st century, that it's still possible that millions of people live like that? What's your maybe, I know it's a longer answer, but I'd love to have your take on that. Well, firstly, I think um, politics plays a major role in it as well. And then also, I think due to like the endemic corruption that, um, you know, we face in South Africa, I think that's also limited the development of a, a better life or a better place to live for a lot of people as well. We have huge problems with corruption. I think uh, I speak under correction, but... Corruption currently is standing in the region of about 250 to 300 billion rand per year. That's money that's just disappeared into thin air, literally. Um, and that's basically what's draining the development um, of providing a, you know, a much better life for people, I suppose. Um, and uh, the sad thing is, and it's a trend I've noticed in other countries and places as well, including Europe, including America, is that there's, there's also never really accountability for these sort of actions, you know. So it's just as if it keeps going on to the point that it doesn't even become an issue for people anymore. They just get on with the mundanity and the, 
the tragedy of their day-to-day lives living like this which is quite sad yeah how would you how would you try to tackle that because i think what was very powerful i mentioned earlier is that you said that a lot of the south africans are not even aware of their own history of where they come from where they are or live the way they do how would you like to tackle that and i think a major one is the educational system but how could like the details look look like okay so the thing is um south africa as a nation and again this is just my own experience um we've pretty much accepted the fact that you know we've we've had this amazing change from the way things were to a democracy to better opportunity but in terms of the detail in terms of the planning there's a definite shortfall on the part of our government or those in charge in that there's no real vision there's no real blueprint although lots of money and time has been invested in these practices in the past uh, these documents somehow just end up gathering dust on someone's shelf so it's not like there hasn't been any initiative to try and rectify the situation uh, it just seems from the top there's no real willingness to you know to actually take us down this pathway and that's because everyone seems to be obsessed with you know what they can get for themselves uh, we've got ministers serving in our government that were elected when Nelson Mandela was around okay we're talking about 20 to 30 years so there's been little change in our in our politics you know people in positions of power uh, some of them getting there through questionable sort of causes uh, they tend to hold on to those positions um, as it seems almost till death and uh, i think we need a bit of a, a shake up a bit of a a bit of a revolution in terms of the younger people living in south africa saying look we stand together we really need to address these issues because it's not just crippling us it's crippling the future of our kids as well eventually and uh, something to that tune needs to happen in south africa you mentioned education which is always a a really amazing way to address these issues now to give you an idea of the rot or the lack of vision uh, our education system over the last two decades has been stripped bare to the sense that a pass mark in south africa today is around about the 30% you know so 30%. on one hand 30% yeah so on one hand we almost seem to be encouraging mediocrity uh now you can think of the generational damage that this is doing you've got learners reaching uh post school where they're entering tertiary education still struggling with basic comprehension with basic reading that now becomes the problem of that particular institution so i look at these things and it's uh it's very basic it's very fundamental but again you need someone or you need a group of people to stand up and say look we we want to change this we we can't go on this is madness you know it's it's not just stifling our country it's stifling our development as young people and uh, a lot of that has to come from the young people the older people that were part of the liberation movement in south africa under great sacrifice under great duress they got us to the point where things had changed you know it's up to the younger people it's up to newer people to pick up that baton and uh, continue the struggle as it were now before we keep going and talking about what it's like for the younger people to pick up the baton and stand up for their country i actually want to talk about one 
special brand that's become one of my favorite South African brands while I was in Cape Town. Um, FOM, short for Freedom of Movement, which really stand for a younger generation standing up for something bigger than them. And they are absolute, some of South Africa's finest quality, whether it's shoes, clothing, overall apparel, accessoires. And they're now slowly setting foot in Europe as well. And I've had the chance to wear some of their sneakers, some of their clothes, and just really loved it so far. So it's a great value for a great price. I'll make sure to put the link in the description. Check them out, leave some love, leave some feedback, and maybe um, you get lucky and purchase one of their shoes. So let's get back into it. Mm. Given, how did it feel for you, given that you were one of those younger people when the last revolution kind of happened with the, with the years of Mandela, where, where things really started to change? Because for me, and I think I speak a lot of for the, for the minds of Europeans, that I think for, we fell in love with like the story of Mandela when, when those images came around the world, when those movies came about. I mean, I think many of you have seen the movie of Mandela Invictus, which is one of my favorite movies. And there you can see, of course, it's a movie, but you can kind of feel like the story behind it, the, the, the revolution of the country came together. How was that for you? It was an amazing time. I mean, it was a, a time of great hope, a time of uh, great promise. Uh, you just need to look at some of the footage, which is freely available on YouTube about the first democratic election in South Africa, where you'd see miles of people, uh, you know, voting, standing in line, getting ready to vote for the first time in their lives. These are young people. These are old people, people from different races. So it was, it was an amazing time. It was a a very positive time. It was a very promising time because we had a united vision. Uh, subsequently, and you can you can fact check this yourself as well. But uh, often on tours today, it's quite a hard thing for me to rationalize when I look or relook at Mandela's first speech. You know, being free for the first time after 27 years, and I look closely at the person holding the the microphone for Mandela. And uh, it's really sad to see and say this, but it's our current, what I call lame duck state president, Cyril Ramaphosa. And, uh, you know, to go from that greatness, from that promise to where we are basically still walking in circles 35 years later, um, it's beyond hurtful, you know, but uh, that is the mentality and the reality still today. Yeah. Uh, so it's almost going from this feeling of being, completely exhilarated and then to this like depression in a way that's that's what it feels like it's like all this open promise and then nothing 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 and still nothing so you have to remain hopeful but you also need you also need to take action you need to speak up you need to you know, you need to address these issues. And I think people are trying. There's been a, a very interesting reconfiguration of the political landscape in South Africa. Uh, the problem is the ANC for many years has been the majority party, even though that support is waning. Uh, but there are some other interesting younger political parties that are sort of making new inroads, of which I can say I don't agree with all their, uh, with all their philosophies or whatever it is they want to do. But I suppose that's just the nature of democracy. You know, things tend to, in the long run, try to autocorrect themselves. So there is some promising things in terms of the local politics taking place. But I mean, in terms of what we have, it needs a complete overall. That's my personal opinion. 
I, I wonder though, because you just said it's beyond hurtful. For me, it's also like beyond comprehension of how it's possible that Ramaphosa back in the day was part of such a greater movement that went across not just Africa, but the world. And yeah. that was led by such an important and revolutionizing figure. Yet that that mindset must have been changed. Do you think it was that person was like that back and then already or was corrupted or became became a product of greed? How is it possible that you, today you look at this this country with such a history, with such so much beauty, yet you have a leader that is just the opposite? Well, I could not judge Ramaphosa's sort of character because I don't know him personally. I can only give you my points based on things he says or things he doesn't do, basically. Uh, but Ramaphosa was, at one point, he was the leader of the largest trade union in South Africa, the National Union of Mine Workers. I think their numbers were over 300, maybe even 400,000. Uh, so he had a lot of clout. But, you know, there's this trend, especially that we've witnessed in South Africa, when someone rises through the ranks of becoming the chairperson for a union, uh, it's just a question of time before they find themselves on the opposite side of the line in terms of being given a corporate position in one of these top mining companies. And uh, Ramaphosa, after Mandela, basically went into business. Uh, he was, I think, under the guidance of Mandela told to do so because there weren't many black industrialists in South Africa, as you can well imagine, because of apartheid. Mm -hmm. So I think that was his way of sort of, you know, squaring out the field in a way. But I mean, he's embraced business. He's a, he's a billionaire. Um, people find loads of cash in his couch on weekends. Uh, he runs a cattle trading business uh, part-time as well, which he seems to give quite a lot of attention to. Um, so he's beholden to maybe different values since then as well. But in terms of being an effective leader or ineffective leader, which I, uh, you know, I pretty much regard him as, uh, his main job, it seems, is actually dealing with different factions of his own political party as opposed to tending to the problems and the cries of the people of South Africa. So for me, uh, and it's not just Ramaphosa, it's the practically most of the government, they operate in a tier that doesn't connect with the populace of South Africa. You could argue that they've lost, they've, they've moved beyond reality in a way. You know, their, their daily existence compromises of things that don't actually affect people of South Africa, it affects their own political standpoint, it affects their own sort of power, uh, it affects their own income. Uh, so there's this disconnect between the government and the people of South Africa. And in most cases, things that have been rectified have actually been rectified by the citizens of South Africa and not the government, which is quite interesting. So how comes that? Well, if you look at like things like we have, we've, we've had quite a few spells of bad weather uh, where people were left homeless, stranded with no food. And instead of the government being able to intervene and help and provide, we've got this amazing, amazing organization called Gift of the Givers. And they do work throughout the world, not just South Africa. It just so happens that the CEO is from South Africa. And... Uh, you know, nine out of 10 times, it would be this private NGO stepping in to help people out in times of like when it's most needed. Um, 
which is essentially a government function. Uh, but there's such failure um, in government that uh, most things work because of the c- concern of, of companies or entities like these NGOs or even just the people of South Africa that, you know, chip in and help out. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the government on most occasions appear to be derelicting their duties when it comes to actually providing to the most vulnerable people in our society. Yeah. If you, if you be given, let's say in a different universe, the chance to run for office or be up there among the politi- uh, politicians, how would you, what would be like some of your first steps to try and reconnect with the population? Well, the thing is, We all first living... and foremost, you probably not accept the money. <laughs> what money? Uh, first and foremost, well, <laughs> the, the, the thing is that, that there needs to be a bit more canvassing around unity in terms of South Africa. And I don't just mean along race lines, but I just mean people in general. Um, you know, we live very different lives. Uh, but what I would do is I would look at ways of rallying around a common vision, you know, and maybe education would be my starting point. You know, really, really paying, really paying attention to what's happening out there in the world, where we could be most effective, and also elevating the status of teachers and uh, people that provide education to our young people. You know, I would really make that a priority. Okay, talking about that, you mentioned that, especially when it comes to education, that oftentimes some of the wrong things are educated or being taught. Or for example, when it comes to history, I remember you told me that oftentimes the actual history of South Africa and Cape Town is misunderstood, that the people in, in South Africa might think it, it's, it was the British or it was the Dutch, whereas you kind of wanted to make sure that there's a better understanding. And I really like the way you kind of brought it down. And I would love for you maybe to give another attempt of that to kind of understand, okay, this is actually all went down. Okay, so in terms of our very short history and my understanding of it, Uh, And again, this is with particular focus around what happened to where I'm from, which is the Cape or Camissa, as we also refer to it by the indigenes. From about the early 1600s, there was this sort of breakaway community of mostly tribal people that were settled around the Bay Area known as Table Bay today, um, that were actually trading uh, in some shape or form as a protoport with some of the ships that were coming around Cape of Good Hope. Now, we all know that Jan van Riebeek of the VOC or the Dutch East India Company, he decided to set up something permanent on behalf of the company from about, I think he arrived at the Cape in 1652. But uh, on record, there are up to about 700 encounters of this community that had settled around Table Bay, who had broken away from sort of tribal culture, that uh, was actually dealing with these ships. So Table Mountain, as I mentioned to you, is a very special mountain, not just because of its unique shape, but it's pretty much regarded as a rain attractor or a rainmaker. Uh, I say that because it's the source of about seven rivers and more than 20 springs. And one of the main rivers was actually used in the Sprater Port. And uh, the river, we refer to it as Camissa which is actually a sort of an English version of a creolized, a creolized word from one of the tribes, which is Spaltamisa, you know, the, the language of cliques. And it basically means sweet water for all. So we, we put great reverence on this river because water 
is something that, well, produces life. And not only that, it was a means of this community trading with all the passing ships as well, whether it was British, Dutch, or even English, as well as Portuguese. And uh, by the time the Dutch got here, they decided to replace this protoboard community. They were known as the Amaaqua. That's what they called themselves. The Dutch, funny enough, referred to them as uh, Vatemens, which is pretty much the same thing, people from the water, right? And uh, it took them about eight years to completely drive these communities and tribes away from the Bay Area. And to me, that was the really first recorded history of forced removals, if we want to really talk about apartheid. Uh, in the 1600s. Uh, but be that as it may, the Dutch were here for about 150 years. Uh, make no mistake, they were, they were quite prevalent in creating industries such as wine and farming uh, infrastructure as well. But uh, it was a very sort of uh, stringent system in the fact that it was completely run by the administration. Uh, even the young men that were brought over as farmers were given specific instruction as to what to grow, how much of it to grow. Uh, they were forbidden from trading amongst each other. They could only sell their produce to the company at the company's listed price. And uh, should they complete this project, which is normally over a five-year period, they were then given the land that they were initially borrowed to do so. So that's where the term Freya Burgers or free farmers in English arrived from. But also, as part of their duty, they were made to stand to protect the Cape when the Cape came under attack. Now, this was an interesting time towards the late 1700s when uh, France was starting to really ascend to power, especially at sea under Napoleon. And uh, the British took this as a sign to basically interject and take the Cape away from the Dutch, which uh, was seen as a strategic point in terms of navigation to the east. Well, they did so in a place called Musenberg, which is where I'm sitting and talking to you from, my favorite place in Cape Town, uh, Surface <laughs> Paradise. Uh, they did so at Musenberg in 1795 and came to some sort of arrangement with the Dutch company uh, that they'd look after their interests. Now, the Dutch then went behind their backs and uh, basically liaised with the French. And when the British got wind of this, they decided to come back and take over the Cape once more for good. Now, the people that stood by the Dutch, the farmers, the, you know, the settlers, etc., they were so upset with the company back then, they decided that, uh, you know what, that the British might not be as bad as they were being treated by the VOC or the Dutch East India Company. And boy, did they get that one wrong. <laughs> it, turned out, <laughs> it turned out the British were, if you could be a bit more fascist, uh, the British just, were... Just a bit. I, yeah, just a little bit. And uh, this is what eventually drove the Dutch and their descendants out of the Cape when the British took control of the Cape, you know. Um, and they then veered north. And that is how you find these uh, other parts of South Africa, like the what used to be known as uh, the province called Transvaal or the Orange Free State, uh, which is now Gauteng. Uh, that is where these they wanted a self-determined republic for themselves. But, and I say a big but, unfortunately, while they were doing so, they also discovered diamonds and gold. <laughs> now, there's, there's this name that stands out, and uh, it's quite interesting because people might have heard of him uh, through some of his, uh, what are they called, scholarships around the world uh, in academia. 
there's this name that stands out in the world that maybe not a lot of people know of, a guy by the name of Cecil John Rhodes. Uh, you might have heard of him. I might have spoken to you about him briefly. Yeah. We had, a, we had a chance to drive also past, I think, one of the universities or something. Yes, that's, and, right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. You, you, you just kind of laughed a bit because you, you kind of wanted to remind us that that name for many represents something positive, yeah. whereas it's kind yeah. of like a brainwashed yeah. name. So yeah. feel free to tell that story. Yeah. So, so Cecil John Rhodes, he, um, he was actually sent to the Cape by his family, quite a wealthy family from, from England over in the UK. Uh, and that was because they'd incorrectly, I think, diagnosed him as having some sort of asthmatic um, condition. It turned out it wasn't asthma, it was actually a heart problem. And that's what eventually caused his death at a very tender age of just 49 years old. But he arrived in South Africa basically at the tender age of around about 19. And uh, after one or two failed business ventures, he found himself looking down what's known as the big hole. And it's not what you think. The big hole, which is a diamond mine in Kimberley. And uh, it was something familiar to a visual of Dante's Inferno. You know, you had like more than 5,000 people completely disorganized, just digging out earth in this massive hole going into the earth. Um, and the thing about fascists is or are is that they make really brilliant administrators. So it was Rhodes' ability to create some sense of order at this operation that really sort of, I, I thought, whetted his appetite for diamond mining as such. And uh, he became exceptionally wealthy because of the discovery of diamonds up in the, the northern parts of the Cape as well as the Transvaal. In fact, he got Queen Victoria to eventually send him a few thousand troops uh, where he could go and take the diamonds away from the, the Boer Republics up in the, the north of Free State and Transvaal. And this was basically the Anglo-Boer War, which took place around about 1899 to 1901. Uh, but Rhodes established a company called the Beers, which is actually named after the farmer whose land he bought that then parceled up as sort of diamond claims, etc. The Beers moved. The Beers Diamonds, I think that's what it was called. And it was actually established in Cape Town as well. And uh, people don't understand the scale of it. There were so many diamonds that even back then, uh, just by pure discovery, that had put Rhodes in a position of monopolizing the entire diamond industry, even to this day. I mean, there's no company bigger than De Beers. So uh, he's, uh, he's quite an interesting character because uh, he also at one stage uh, was the president of the Cape Parliament we passed a little piece of legislation, uh, some say by sleight of hand, that uh, was called the Native Land Act. And it was this piece of legislation that would ultimately rob or take away about 80% of black people in Southern Africa's property and human rights. So they get 80%? Yep, uh, property and uh, their rights, basically, as citizens. The Native 80%. Land Act. Yep, yep. And how, how so, is it possible uh, it's called the Native Land Act? <laughs> yes, well, I suppose because they had all the pen and paper. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, we've got, we've got these sort of artificial countries they call homelands in South Africa. Uh, one was called the Putitswana, the other one was called Swaziland as well. Uh, and all they are is basically ways to control uh, the movement and the rights of large amounts of people by putting them in a place with a, a boundary around it, basically. So it's easier 
to deal with one person running that than having to manage tens and thousands of people that don't necessarily agree with you. So uh, that's just part of Rhodes' legacy. Um, his grand vision was actually to, well, colonize the whole of Africa. He wanted to build a railroad that linked Cape Town all the way to Cairo. And, uh, you know, just happy colonizing as he went along. Uh, he got as far as what's known as Zimbabwe today, but it used to be called Rhodesia. Uh, there's also this little thing about the migrant mining system that he perfected as well, not just in South Africa, extending far beyond the borders of South Africa as far as Botswana. Uh, you know, we organized these trains to go around and pick up black single men who would in turn be brought to the mines of the Transvaal uh, to do the mining. Uh, and that system is still pretty much in place today, which is quite interesting. So, you know, you're talking about someone who, even though he's not with us, he's had this immense sort of influence, um, which in many cases goes unchecked as well uh, in what we're still experiencing in our day-to-day -day realities. It's quite interesting. Love him or hate him, he was definitely a, what I call a product of his time. I can imagine. But how is it? Because I'm, I'm guessing that, is that something that's being taught in the schools and for a South African children or is that something that you managed to obtain by yourself uh like most of most of my knowledge i obtained through finding out things for myself yeah i mean school was pretty pathetic uh you know we were taught to glorify young van Riebeek and uh not these these heathen black monsters in loincloth that you know were barbarians that would kill white people I mean, the stuff I learned at school was pretty shocking. Even when I was learning it, I was thinking, but this can't be right. Uh, but that I, I've got no idea what kids are being taught today, really. I don't have any idea. But a lot of the things that I know uh, are either through speaking to people, uh, investigating things on my own, or just doing my own fact-checking or research, you know. Like, here's an interesting thing that I, I just learned about five years ago. So, Van Riebeek, wasn't a great guy, but I mean, he was, yeah, he lived here, he did what he did, uh, made way for the next guy, my favorite invader, Simon van der Stahl, uh, Simon van der Stahl, as I call him. Um, but just perusing the statues, which no one really goes to because it's located towards the waterfront at the edge of the city, the statues of Jan van Riebeek, as well as his then wife, Maria de la Quere. And... Uh, Reading the inscriptions, I realized, but these statues were actually paid for and erected by Cecil John Rhodes. And then it dawned on me, what, a, what, a, what an interesting way to create a historical narrative by basically just being able to fund all of it out of your own pocket. <laughs> and yeah. that's history. Yeah, that's, that's history, history for you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing because it just, you feel like that, with, with a person that doesn't have this information yet goes through the system, how do you expect them to even take the initiatives or actions that are necessary to start questioning these things and start going towards a different direction? So it's like it, this, this yeah. whole system is kind of set up for it to continue like yeah. that. Yeah, no, of course, definitely. Or well, that's the impression one gets, that it's just business as usual. I mean, there's a building in town. I don't know if I shared that with you. Uh, which I'm still trying to comprehend on various levels what it means, but there's a building called 
Rhodes Mandela Place in the middle of the CBD. And it's actually built around the offices of De Beers Mining. It's a massive apartment complex. It's an hotel, it's apartments, it's got uh, sort of different types of shops and stores in it as well. But knowing what I know, it's still a, a bit hard for me to digest having to say both names in one sentence, Rhodes, Mandela. But you see what's happening. They're sort of elevating Rhodes to the statue of Mandela. Um, maybe it's on the basis of their foundations or educational programs or whatever. But, I mean, that's basically how you whitewash history as well, you know. Like, was he that bad? Well, he's not that bad if he's in the same building name as Nelson Mandela, you know, the father of our democracy. So he must have been an okay guy. And uh, going forward, I'm sure that's what he'll be in the next few generations as well. But I find that quite interesting. Me, me, me too. Trust me. And I think people listening as well. But having talked about was he that bad, I would like to maybe switch to more of a positive character in your history of was Mandela that good? For me, when I think about it, um, I will never forget one of my best friends when I was the first time in South Africa, actually living in Musenberg. And as it turns out, we were neighbors back then, which is kind of crazy and very <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> Long live Hastings Road. But I'll never forget my friend then asked me, like, who is somebody who you'd love to sit down with back from history? And for me, the first thing that always came up was either Hitler, because I'm a German, and she's kind of asking, like, man, what the fuck? Or Mandela, because, <laughs> because yeah. that's kind of like, that is such an unbelievable story to fathom. Which, which was including imprisonship for, for 27 years to then be able to take the power to reunite an entire country. And then having the first images, or like the only images I've really ever experienced were of the World Cup 2010, which for me will always be my favorite World Cup as it just showed the beauty of your culture, of course, on a foundation which is still corrupt and, and you name it. But it's just, for me, there was always this beautiful image behind it. And I'm curious, is that image the same for you guys? Is that, is, was he really that impactful, that good? Or was there always like also a side to it that people are not really aware of? Okay, I suppose uh, that's a really good question or uh, point that you're phrasing. Uh, I suppose it really matters to whom you speak and what their sort of affiliations are, political or ideological, in terms of how they see Mandela. Uh, but for me, it was always a very positive influence and a very positive force. Uh, what a lot of people don't remember or don't get is that Mandela is he's the brand of our struggle. So it was decided many years ago, as far back possibly as the 50s, well, the 60s, the late 60s, that he would be the brand of our struggle. And that's why his face is emblazoned on T-shirts, on books, at concerts. It was always about free Nelson Mandela. Uh, Mandela was in prison for 27 years, um, 18 of which was spent on Robben Island, uh, which is also a place I had the privilege of staying on for two years, and now I was not in prison. That's normally the next question. Um, <laughs> uh, that's another, that's another uh, story, by the way. But the thing is, what a lot of people don't get is, even though those situations were quite dire on Robben Island, Mandela and his comrades, they utilized that opportunity to prepare themselves for when South Africa was going to correct itself. So it was, it had a, it had on some levels, it had the energy or the atmosphere of a place of learning amongst those that were in prison. And actually, a lot of comrades got their education while being in prison on Robben Island as well. 
So it was a very interesting mixture. It wasn't just the prison. There were also these other things happening on the island as well. Well, after about 18 years, he, um, he became really ill. And it was decided that they'd move him to the mainland, uh, seeing that Robben Island's on a, well, it's on an island. Don't have to worry with a, with a boat or a ferry. And he was actually kept at a maximum security prison, not with the general population, but on his own. And he was allowed to bring about six of his closest comrades along with him. Uh, he'd stayed there for about seven years before then being moved into the Winelands region, which a lot of people also don't know, a place back then called Victor Vestad. It's now been renamed as the Drakenstein Correction Facility. And uh, the last 14 months of that sort of detention was actually in a warden's cottage, uh, which, again, a lot of people don't know. So it wasn't as if he was in prison prison. And it would be through the gates of that prison out in the Winelands that he would walk with his fist aloft, you know, holding the hand of his then wife, Winnie Madikazala Mandela, um, as uh, we all waited to meet him in the city. And that's where he addressed 250,000 people. And uh, the video is on YouTube. Surprisingly, it's got less than 100,000 views, which is also quite mind-boggling but it's inspirational all the same. But the point I'm making is that Mandela was essentially in prison. Uh, Mandela did not free South Africa like a lot of people believe. Mandela was the face of our struggle. He was the face of our liberation. He was the face of our defiance against the apartheid state. But by that time, from about the 80s, from the early 80s to the late 80s, there were several things that just sort of seemed to fall into place that really put the attention of the world on South Africa. In part, there was the anti-apartheid movement. There was the sanctions uh, in sport and business. And then there was also this uprising of young people, uh, which our my generation was a part of, where we were trying to make South Africa as ungovernable as possible, not by destroying things, but by protesting, you know, by stretching the apartheid government all over the place. And I think it's a culmination of those things that made it untenable for the nationalists to then be forced to release Mandela and look at renegotiating a way forward, which then first led to consultations. It was called Gadesa, where they actually had engagements over a few months deciding on what a constitution would look like until uh, they were all in agreement. Uh, that then finally led to our elections in 1994, you know, and... Uh, the unbanning of the ANC, as well as the release of Mandela in 1990. But the point I'm trying to make is uh, Mandela was someone with vision. He was someone with integrity. And he was, he was based, well, he is the father of our democracy because he led us. He was the first official state president after we voted. Uh, he never wanted to do more than one term. He felt it was, there were people more ready than he was. Uh, and then since then, you know, two terms later, things started taking a turn for the worse. So in, in a way, in a way, I must say, I just want to add a little point. In a way, you know, we were so elated, we were so overcome with this new dawn of democracy that things were going to change, that we weren't keeping our eye on those in power. And that is where the cracks first appeared. You know, we were, we were almost too euphoric to make sure there were systems in place where there would be accountability, where we could, you know, get closure on things, where we could hold people to accountable. And unfortunately, that's never been the case, and that's just completely mushroomed uh, from year to year, basically, to where we find ourselves. 
how much how much resentment do you have because i feel like it's there's like a sound of like feeling being like feeling failed by the system there's a lot of resentment well re resentment in the sense that we could do a lot better you know that that we should do a lot better but i think the resentment also comes from the fact that in a lot of ways as an individual even though you've seen experienced all of this uh to, in a lot of ways you feel completely overwhelmed by what you experience day by day to the the point that you almost feel as if you're powerless mm. so maybe that's where my resentment's coming from um, okay. i don't take anything away from anyone and i will be the first to admit you know if i don't agree or i said something wrong but you know just to be faced with blatant corruption and non accountability day to day um, it's a very unsustaining business model <laughs> so it, yeah is it is it very frustrating knowing that you have so many tourists come in from a year-to-year -year perspective and these tourists i mean i was one of them come in and they're just overwhelmed by the beauty of the country by by the food by the culture i mean i personally think that the south african people are one of the kindest people out there i mean they whether, it's, yeah. whether it's, a, it's someone in the restaurant Exactly. Whether it's rest from the restaurant, the supermarket, an Uber driver, who knows? It's always, you're always welcomed by a smile, by somebody who wants to make sure you take the most out of this country. And mm -hmm. how frustrating might that be? Okay. Well, it's not frustrating. It's actually hopeful because what it, under, what it underpins is that the people, they're not reflecting the doom and gloom that's happening in terms of how they're being government. It's, it's the people, it's the individual people that still band together under this vision of whether it's Mandela's, of whether it's a better South Africa. But but the real people of South Africa, the people that live there, we want South Africa to succeed. We want to be able to live together in harmony. But the thing is, people need to eat. People need decent places to live. People need healthcare. People need education. And I think this is again where my resentment comes from, is that all this money that is just you know, going to who knows where uh, is being wasted, you know, while people are rocking, while people are languishing, while people are suffering, you know, in this beautiful country called South Africa. I would like to jump a bit more abrupt, but jump to kind of how sports, how important sports has been in your history, because for me, that's one of my favorite things in the world. And I'll never forget that one, I mentioned the World Cup, which I think put an incredibly image on you guys, which of course was a bit brainwashed, again, making making up for what's actually behind it. But I'll never forget that that time seemed extremely peaceful. Of course, it's a World Cup. It always reunites the world. But how impactful was the World Cup and the Rugby World Championship, which led to like the story of Invictus and kind of like not an end to apartheid, but a crack, as you mentioned. How important were these events for you guys? Well, you know what? Um, I'm sure you know that we just won the World, World Rugby Cup uh, for, well, the Rugby World Cup, let me get that right, uh, for the fourth time, uh, cool beating New Zealand once again, like we have in the past. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that I'm going to put squarely at the feet of Nelson Mandela, you know, when it came. And, and again, this my point about vision early on which we don't see from our current leaders like Ramaphosa, whatever. Uh, Nelson Mandela realized, I mean, although rugby is a sport played by all races around South Africa, uh, during apartheid, obviously, it was given preference to like our white 
counterparts. And uh, it was Nelson Mandela that actually, you know, united the whole country around South Africa and rugby. And it's had such an impact. I mean, consider this, that the current captain, uh, who's a brilliant young man, Sia Khaleesi, uh, grew up very poor, uh, played rugby on a, on a gravel patch in the Eastern Cape. But when he saw what South Africa did and what Nelson Mandela did when he was a little boy, he decided that he's going to lead the Springboks one day. And guess what? He's done that. You know, so it's an amazing story. Uh, similarly with the Soccer World Cup, I mean, you know, it's the same story wherever FIFA goes. FIFA's the only people that really make money, you know. Build stadiums, drain your fiscus, give us our 10 billion and thank you very much on the plane and there they go to the next four years. But um, in terms of the Soccer World Cup, it's still, I don't know, it beggars the mind. Like, imagine one month where the train service in your town works superfluously every day, whole day for 30 days. I've never seen the local train service be so efficient in my entire life in Cape Town. And I'm still trying to get over that part of it. I mean, the celebrations and the people and the sharing and the, the fan parks, it was just an amazing time. I mean, basically the whole waterfront became a fan park and, and the spirit and the atmosphere for that whole month was super electrifying. So we also love our sport. And um, I think Mandela did a great thing when he did what he did by, you know, unifying us around the Rugby World Cup, which even to this day, the players, they carry that that promise, they carry that that image in their heads when they play rugby. And I think that's an amazing thing. 100%. I think, um, I don't, yeah, I was... I don't know when it was at the which game because I'm not a big rugby fan. I just, because of some of my friends, I watched some games and because I knew I was going to South Africa last year, I watched the World Cup and of course I was for the box. I'll never forget that the speech after one of the games, which I think Khaleesi said was yeah. exactly that. And I think it's those where he talked about that rugby is just a sport for the people on the pitch, but it's just, it's almost life, an entire feeling of hope for the people back home. And the way he was talking about it, really, you could feel it was coming from the heart. Mm -hmm. I think it's those stories that ultimately can lead to those like sparks, as you said, not a revolution, but of, of hope, of upbringing. And that I think was very powerful. And I think that's what also got millions of views and made me also a big fan of him. Like he has like this brand called Freedom of Movement, which I kind of bought or fell for because of what he stands for and what it speaks about. So. I think it's those figures ultimately and that's the beauty of sports that they tell millions of stories and provide an audience and so i hope that he continues to take advantage of that and tell that story mm. that's a beautiful story and uh, what a brilliant young man what a brilliant young man how old were you during the um rugby championship the first time when you guys won against new zealand and kind of for the first time had like blacks and whites standing behind the white uh, spring box Okay, so back then I'd, I'd have been in my sort of, um, I'd have been in my sort of mid twenties. Uh, that was in nineteen ninety five, and uh, it was amazing because I was actually in Johannesburg and I met more than half the team at uh, a place called Sun City. After that, it was just an out of body surreal experience. I mean, it was like being 
it's, I felt like I'd have died and gone to rugby heaven, basically. It was an amazing <laughs> sensation, yeah. It was so unbelievable because, I mean, half the team are like my heroes and stuff as well. Uh, obviously, a lot of them aren't alive even today, but like having seen them one and then meeting them a few hours later, it was just like, wow. It was like one of the best things I've ever experienced as well. Back, back then, how was it for you as a, as a black man kind of like supporting an almost fully white team? Did it take like the convincing of Mandela to be like, hey, give them a chance or we all need you? Or how was it? Uh, was it a weird feeling? No, not at all. I mean, like, the thing is, like, Mandela was wearing the captain's jersey, you know, so Mandela six, was huh? the spring box. Yeah, he was the spring box. So, you know, the, I remember a time growing up um, when I was much younger, uh, this was still during black and white television, where my dad and I would get up at some ludicrous time in the morning to watch um, the box play New Zealand. Uh, on a black and white TV, which is not the easiest thing to do because it all looks black and white. Um, but back then, and this was probably, this would have been, yeah, this would have been in the 70s or the early 80s. Back then, the majority of non-white South Africans, uh, and I include myself in that as well, we used to support the New Zealanders because of apartheid. In fact, there are still groups of South Africans today that haven't broken that alliance. So in other mm -hmm. words, you've got you've got groups of people like myself that still don't support the Springboks, that still support the New Zealanders or the All Blacks. Uh, but at some point, you know, at some point, um, you've got to you've got to support what's happening around you or what's bigger than you. Uh, so for me, it wasn't really a choice. I mean, rugby was the unifier, and Mandela was. He had the golden goose, you know, when he spoke to a team, even the soccer team, it was impossible for you to lose. You you wouldn't want to come back to South Africa. So you just simply did your absolute best. You know, he just brought the best out of people. And and that's what I mean by by creating a vision, by incorporating everybody and having a, a specific vision, uh, something that is so sorely lacking in our discourse when it comes to not just politics, but like. You know, life in South Africa today, we lack clear vision. It's interesting. I had one of these discussions actually with one, somebody, he was a cheesecake seller at a, at a farmer's market. I mean, the one you also recommended, amazing cheesecake. But we actually talked about rugby and he was like a big New Zealand fan. And I was like, hey, how is that possible for you though, that in such a rugby nation, you support New Zealand? And he was telling me that and I, I understand yeah. it, yet I feel like it's, you know, if you're asking for some change and you also got to rally behind your team. I mean, for me, mm -hmm. I'm a massive football fan. And right now the German national team is absolute crap. Yet yeah. I always tell my friends who are very critical of them is we're also part of it. You know, we are like, the, I feel like the sports team represents the nation. And so in order for us to expect them to do better, we got to rally behind them. And so sure, I think that's it's the logic. Yeah. So yeah. you guys, you guys made it as far, you made it as far as these, the finals though, didn't you? In 2010. No, they're yeah. semi-final. Puyol from Spain crushed our yeah. dreams. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. I remember watching that at the waterfront. It was an amazing game. I've never seen so many people in my life before watching a football match. It was just mind-boggling. My my heart starts racing whenever I think about the first game of that World Cup, where Chabalala, I think, was in our. Oh, you scored a goal! Yes, yes, yes. He smashed it top ten, <laughs> top right, and then I the know, dance. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the magic. Incredible. Yes. <laughs>
Yeah, but it that's that's kind of like the struggle with like when you think about like FIFA, like you always look back and you always have like this positive image of it. But now it's thinking about it, like you look at the city from an outside perspective, you have this massive stadium, yeah. right, which is yeah. barely ever filled, yet it represents so much fun and so many good stories. And so I really hope that one day uh, the sports world will also like flourish there again and maybe another World Cup. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's currently taken over by our rugby team, which is also really a brilliant team, the Stormers. And I think they've got the stadium under contract. So they're definitely bums on seats and people coming in here. Okay. Now, that being said, um, we're slowly, I think, coming to an end. But beforehand, I want to make sure that you also have a chance to answer the fire five questions, which are always five questions, which I ask every every guest on the podcast to yeah. Without thinking about it much, just giving out some answers, which is either some some faf book, who knows? And I just want to kind of shoot them out to you. Okay. Good. Now, first one. You are, I think, a very very well read person, and I'm curious what your most impactful book is that you've ever read. Uh, that would be Cosmos by Carl Sagan. Why that uh, one? And and. Well, the thing is, um, I've always been fixated on how things work or how things are like in my perception or around me. And I think by reading Cosmos, which happened by accident because I'm not a big fan of astronomy or astrology, etc. Um, just the way the messages were conveyed and the, the things that made me sort of contemplate to think about it really, I think, like clicked something in my mind. It was really not just informative, but it, it opened up the wonder of, of this place we all find ourselves in, but on a much larger scale. It was something up till then I've never, ever read before. So that, that really sort of, I think, made my mind click a bit. Okay. What's your favorite motivational song, whether it's a South African, South African one or not? What's one that on a dark, shitty day, what do you listen to? Uh, that would probably be like uh, something like Billie Holiday. Um, I like jazz quite a bit nice. as well. Uh, Strange Fruit comes into my mind, uh, which is uh, maybe quite melancholic. But yeah, there's nothing better than Billie Holiday, a single malt scotch and raindrops against the window outside. I love that. That's a good one. What's a person that you look up to or have looked up to in the past that's really motivated you and inspired you to go on this journey? Um, I've, I've been very happy. I can't say there's been one particular person, but the main influences in my life um, have been mostly women teachers. Why is uh, that? That have really... I don't know. For me, it's got to do with uh, the nurturing way in which I think I was taught or how I was treated to some degree as well. But it's it's really made me more aware of of being a sort of a more kinder, thoughtful person. Um, and when I think about my past, it's those teachers and they just all happen to be women. That's beautiful. Um, what's one sentence that would you would give your younger self? For example, you mentioned earlier there's a lot of trauma you went to as a kid. What's what's like a sentence you would give that child back then? Um, I'd have to... The first thing... I love quotes, by the way, and I can't actually give you one that, that would do justice to the question. 
but there's one that's been standing out in my mind for ever so long over the last at least year and that is so little time so much to do which uh, coincidentally were also the last dying words of Cecil John Rhodes that is very ironic talk, beautiful talk about talk about learning from your past eh? learning, wow that, that's a good one that's written down right here thank you okay. and last but not least every guest always talks about one challenge that they had to endure this week that's been going through and what's something on your mind that's been bothering you that's something that you've been dealing with um curious to know that uh my health my health i think i need to really take stock of my health i work very long hours and i don't always have the the healthiest of uh, sort of activities when i'm not working um but yeah what's clear for me is this month i'm doing a an audit on my on my health and just trying to just trying to to be healthier you know because uh going forward it's all about sort of preservation for me if that makes sense i want to make sure that i really enjoy my life going forward and i think i just need to make some adjustments in terms of my my health regimen for this year okay i appreciate that i appreciate you sharing and if there's anything i can do or if there's any podcast that might be interesting for you let me know would love to help you in that okay. journey but okay. um, no, cool. either way rico i generally I really appreciate you not just telling the story for the first time, but second time, actually, for continuing to, on a daily basis, telling this true story of South Africa, of Cape Town, of telling people of the things they might see but not know. And for that, I really appreciate you. I'm sure people will, will listening to that will also be amazed by it. Um, now, last but not least, where can people find you? Uh, I mean, I'll make sure to add some links, but once they maybe even come to Cape Town, how can they reach you? How can yeah. they find you? Okay, so... Firstly, thanks very much, Lucas, for the opportunity and for having me on your show. Um, it's super simple. Um, I did I did send you a link, I think it was, and that's to an experience which I host on the Airbnb platform, where I specifically walk people through my own journey of apartheid in the city. In fact, if you just Googled journey with me through apartheid, you'll find the Airbnb listing. Uh, so that's one way, because if you signed up with Airbnb, we can communicate on the platform as well. Although the easiest way would be by email. And uh, my email is simply maven, M-A-V-E-N, C-P-T, as in maven, that's C-P-T stands for Cape Town. So it's just mavencpt at gmail.com. Thank you that's so much. That's the easiest way. Yeah. Amazing. Cool. We'll be in touch. I appreciate you being here. Um, I hope you continue to kick some ass in the touristy season. You enjoy that sun and you make sure you get your health right. And uh, we'll be in touch, my friend. Okay. Thanks, Lucas. Lovely seeing you again. All the best. Peace. Bye.